Yes, it's the radio show that all the children working in your subterranean eBay sweatshop can agree on. Welcome to the Selling on eBay radio show. We're here to save you money, to increase your sales, and to have fun. The lines are open for your calls and texts. 1-833-EBAY-723. That's 1-833-322-9723. This is Fake Announcer Guy saying here's Philip and Sherry. So it's the uh, Selling on eBay radio show. We're here to make your eBay business hopefully more fun and maybe a little bit more profitable. Sherry Smith and Philip Jackson, your hosts. Sherry is uh, based in Colorado and, as we kind of hinted earlier, has an army of people that uh, come to her house every day and help her with her eBay business. And Philip went full-time on eBay 12 years ago. He's an arbitrage expert, buying high, buying low and selling high <laughs> in electronics, but he might not always sell what he buys, which is why his laundry paraphernalia collection is substantial. And that's us, and a uh, slightly different format this week. We've got a guest on the show. We've got Jessica Oman joining us. And uh, Sherry, what's the scuttlebutt that we have on, on Jessica? We've been able to find out about her. Okay, well, Jessica is the co-owner of Storage Warrior, a reselling business based in Vancouver, Canada. She also is the host of a brand new podcast, The Business of Reselling, a podcast about scaling up your reselling business to six figures and beyond. She and her husband started out buying at storage auctions, and as the business grew, they started buying estates and large collections of comic books. Ooh, I've got some comic books to tell you about. <laughs> Toys and all kinds of vintage and collectibles. They're obsessed with keeping cool stuff out of the trash, mm -hmm. and Jessica loves applying her MBA background to improving her business while helping other resellers do the same. Jessica is a natural educator who moonlighted as a university professor and business consultant, but the opportunities in the world of reselling are where her passions truly lie and where she has the most fun. Storage Warrior was recognized as, e as eBay Canada's Micro Multinational Entrepreneur of the Year in 2019, and again in 2020 as eBay Hall of Fame inductees. So Jessica, welcome to the, uh, the program. Thank you for having me. Studio audience, suitably impressed. Thank you very much for joining us. And um, uh, we invited you because I caught uh, a podcast that you've started, which I thought was very interesting. And I think your take on the podcast thing is more towards about trying to apply perhaps some analysis to sort of uh, seller type issues rather than just telling people what they should do, right? I really think that a lot of people got into reselling kind of by accident and, and we did too. I mean, that's mm. honestly the story that so many people have. It's like, I just started doing this and it was super fun and easy. And so I kept going with it, but not very many people then begin to apply business strategy to what they're doing and start to think about like, okay, well, how, how do I control my supply chain? What do I do with pricing? How do I, so I kind of wanted to put a podcast together that would dive into some of these aspects of business strategy within the context of reselling to sort of help people grow their businesses faster. Very good. And uh, I thought it was very informative. I liked the one about saying no, because I think that's something that <laughs> sellers, we, we, we don't like doing. We think we're turning away money. Yeah, is the key to making money, actually, is, is being you know, selective. 
No, it really is. Uh, you have to, you cannot say yes to everything in the business world. You have to stay true to what your uh, strategy is, what your approach to business is, and where your boundaries are. And whether that's saying no to something that somebody's trying to sell you when you're sourcing, um, or saying no to a buyer that's asking you to do something unreasonable, um, as long as you can do that respectfully, which is really not that hard, um, you can you'll run a more successful and more streamlined business. Cool. Now, I guess through the business school and, and meeting other sellers, you get to talk with lots of people have, who have different uh, problems and issues. And what we thought we'd ask you is, you know, what are the things that come up most commonly as the big issues that, that sellers face that perhaps is the hurdles that stand between them, where they are now, and where they want to get to in terms of making more money in the future? I think if I were to speak generally to that, um, I noticed mm -hmm. that a lot of sellers get stuck on very small issues and problems without thinking enough about the big picture. So instead of thinking long term about what is my business going to look like in three years, what platforms am I going to be selling on, um, you know, what kind of uh, sourcing methods do I want to be using in the long term? Um, they're thinking about, gosh, this latest eBay glitch is really frustrating me or, you know, like these very small sort of things. And I, hmm. I think one of the things I want to do is like talk to people more about, you know, you don't have to worry so much about those little day to day um, setbacks if you're focused more on long term gains. Which is, I think, that sort of business school mentality is coming through because a lot of that <laughs> time is spent trying to, you know, get in the 50,000 foot helicopter view and see with the bigger picture. And I think as, as people who sell online, we're so focused on just getting the orders in, getting the labels printed, getting the things out the door that sometimes we, we overlook things that are perhaps big, but just never get around to fixing. And that's a completely normal thing as well. And I ha mm -hmm. I get caught up in that too, you know, even especially when things get really busy and we're starting to head into Q4 and there's just order after order after order, you're, it's very easy to just fall into your sort of day-to-day -day routine and forget like, oh, right, I'm trying to take this somewhere. So mm -hmm. that's very normal and I wouldn't disparage any seller for forgetting to think about the long term. It's more about taking some time to come back and, and focus there at, on a regular basis. I've been, uh, sorry, I've been telling myself for the past couple of years, Sherry, you have to be a business woman. You have to think differently because I'm always, I feel like struggling to survive, you know, make enough money to pay all the bills. And I really have to think of strategy like what you're talking about. And um, I feel like you kind of need people in place more to do some of the day-to-day -day things so that you can for yourself up. I think hiring some kind of support is really critical to growth. It's, you know, the, the cheesy phrase, there's no I in team. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you can't just do everything on your own in, in this business or in any business. And even though hiring people can be a very stressful experience, um, there's a lot of different ways to find the support that you need in your business. It doesn't necessarily mean putting somebody on payroll. It could mean having somebody come in just a few hours a week just to do your photographs. It could mean hiring a bookkeeper so that you don't have to worry about getting all of your ledgers exactly correct and you have someone else doing it for you. So there's different ways that you can outsource very small tasks in your business that will free you up a lot more to think about where you actually want to go with the business. 
Now, we asked if you could come up with the sort of three, perhaps the most common things that you, you encounter. So what would be the first one that you find is, the, is, is a common issue that sellers come up against? So this was really fun. Me and my husband were talking about this on our drive back from Whistler yesterday. <clears throat> we're like, what are the things that we see the most commonly? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when, the first one that we came up with is um, believing that a dollar profit is still a profit. So this is like a, a, a not really a strategic approach. It's more of a, a lack of one. Um, so this is where a seller says, well, you know, I bought this thing for $5 and I finally sold it for 10 I made five bucks. Yay, good for me. I still made money. Or if you've ever watched the show Storage Wars, they used to do this all the time on the show and it would drive me nuts. They would buy a locker for $500. They would spend all day sorting it out, another half a day driving out somewhere to get something appraised. And then they would say like, you know, Jared and Brandy made $650 on their $500 investment with a profit of 150. No, it wasn't. You spent all day to make that 150 bucks and you haven't even sold anything yet. And it was totally staged by the production company in the first place. (laughs) But it's that, it's that, um, um, that kind of math and people see that on television and they go, oh yeah, well, they still made money, but but you, but you don't. When you start to think about the value of your time that you've put into acquiring, photographing, processing, putting in inventory, pulling, packaging, shipping, and making the label, and then potentially also having customer service involved in that transaction, that's that can be a lot of time. And so you have to figure out a way to put a value stamp on your time that I'm worth at least this much per hour and then try to focus the um, try to build your profit margin around like that guarantee that you're going to make that amount of money every single hour that you put into your business. Of course, that won't be the case every single time. We all make bad buys. We all end up liquidating inventory that's been sitting around forever because it just needs to get off the shelf. So you don't necessarily make a great profit margin every single time, but it's about building that average up and making it bigger so that you're getting paid fairly for the hard work that you do. I was definitely making that mistake, but the thing that helped to clarify for me whether something was truly profitable was in hiring help because as Philip alluded to, I have a lot of <laughs> teenagers working for me. And um, by paying them, because I pay them a fair wage, and I give them raises, and I calculate how much they are listening and how much our return is on it. So that really illuminates what's actually profitable. So Jessica, do you have a specific number that you use as effectively the cost of your time? I, I often joke that I won't even get out of bed for at least, unless I get at least $50. <laughs> so you do it it's yeah. per, per item, which is what Don't I Don't tell the That's teenagers that. It's just too cold. Is that what you're doing? So basically you have to make an X on a, on a deal, otherwise it's not worth doing. Is that the way you're doing it? So there's kind of two approaches. With, with the way that we source, it's a bit challenging to 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 say, oh, here's our exact average profit margin on each item because mm-hmm. we will go and buy a collection and there might be 3,000 things in there. Um, I, I'm not going to sit down and make a spreadsheet of each item and what we sold it for and figure out exactly what the margin is. Mm-hmm. So we kind of, we, we look at it in a couple of ways. So one is that we're always trying to five to one our investment. So we buy something for $1,000. We, we want to assure, be assured that we're going to profit at least $5,000 on that. Um, so that's sort of an average that we kind of try to go for. So, for mm-hmm. example, we might buy a comic book collection. We see a few comic books in there that we could sell for, you know, 
$10,000, let's say, then we're trying to get that collection for around $2,000 because we're factoring in all of the things that I just mentioned about mm-hmm. the processes involved with um, getting a listing together and actually selling a thing. And and we know that in order to make our target 20 to 25% profit margin on the year, that 5 to 1 ratio is what we need. Um, hmm. So that's one way that we look at it. That's great. I, I think that's great to have a formula that people can look at. I got to change what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> and the other way too is that we sort of look at our net profit month to month and say like what what was our net profit this month? You know how many and then how many hours or how much time did we put into the business this month, approximately? And are we happy with our the profit that we're taking home based on the amount of time that uh, we put? Without in? wishing to sort of put you on the spot or ask you for confidential information, but what mm. do you think would be for a relatively competent seller, what would be the hourly rate they should be able to net, you know, averaged out over a month, do you think? 50 to $100 an hour. Okay. And that's not too bad, is it? Oh, no, it's... How many people do you that. think are running Even in Vancouver. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, how many people would, many people would get that kind are, of number? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. People don't... For obvious reasons, aren't always comfortable sharing what they mm-hmm. earn, so it's really hard to say. Um, you know, and even people who go online and talk a lot about their success aren't necessarily experiencing that. So right. I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm always looking for million-dollar sellers to interview them. So <laughs> I will be doing a little more deep dive into finding those people soon. Okay, we'll look forward to following you as you pursue that. That's going to be interesting. Because yeah. I think one of the things that um, is is tricky about selling things in thrift stores and stuff. There's a lot of people out there that are doing it, frankly, just to fill their time. And they don't really charge out their time at a commercial rate. They just want to get out the house. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of sets kind of a fairly low bar on places like eBay in terms of some people's price expectations that it's hard for you to come in, Who someone who wants to make 50 100 an hour, which is reasonable of, compared to, say, corporate work. Um, and, and you're kind of competing on a different different basis. I guess. I mean, the buyers aren't necessarily going to see that. Uh, if we're if we're trying to sell consistently, trying to sell high quality items at a good price, things that are more difficult to find, things that are in high demand, and we consistently um, offer good customer service, you know, fair policies, um, and our listings and descriptions are high quality, then we're going to win, even if other sellers are trying to race to the bottom with similar products. Yeah, so pricing low isn't necessarily better to out to price lower than your competition. Pricing low is almost never better. Um, what when we we never use a low price strategy. We will undercut other sellers from time to time, and one of the. Uh, one of the times that we might do this is, let's say we, f- we find an item that doesn't have very many available, maybe less than 20 available, and we see that at least that many have also sold in the last 90 days. We know that's a good high demand item. Um, and so if we see just a few that are available for sale, we may undercut the price a little bit, um, but not a lot. I never want to be that person who comes in like half underneath the next seller's price because that oh, no. can kind of tweak a buyer to say, well, is there something wrong with the product? Is there something wrong with the seller? Like, what are they not disclosing? So if we're going to undercut, we're still going to be probably within about 90% of the lowest 
uh, price. As well, sometimes we find, and I'm sure you know this from selling yourselves, the sold price on eBay is often very different from the price people are asking. Mm -hmm. And so we will try to price it based on solds. And from time to time, that is actually quite a bit lower than the rest of the sellers on eBay are asking. And that's just because we know what price it's going to sell for. So it's not really undercutting the other sellers. It's really just being realistic about what we know we can get for that item. I think one of the things, one of the challenges with eBay in particular is that their their search algorithm, I think, is geared towards trying to find things driven on price. And it's hard to differentiate on eBay and get a higher price than everybody else because the search system says, well, Jessica's really high priced on this. She's double well, the average is we're not going to surface her in search because we don't think it's going to convert to a sale. Mm. We're going to go with, you know, Joe Cheatjack, who's who's obviously, you know, cheap compared to everybody else. Is there, do you have any ideas as to how to tackle that? I don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the algorithm is doing. I focus my time on trying to be a really good business owner. Mm-hmm. And that has helped us succeed over and over and over and over and over again when other people are not selling. Um, we can't control the algorithm. In our business, We you need to focus on what you can control. Um, so I'm not too worried about that if I know that I'm putting everything into creating a great listing with good policies at a fair price and selling items that buyers are looking for right now and that are currently in demand. So I don't actually really ever worry about what the algorithm thinks mm-hmm. other than using search engine optimization to make really great titles. I was going to ask you, could you be a bit more specific when you say a great listing and um, policies and things? I mean, could you have any particular formula that you found does allow you to achieve that that better price versus other people? I think we face actually a little bit of an obstacle as Canadian sellers Hmm. um, competing with American sellers because we're not able to be as flexible with our policies as people can in the US. And specifically, I'm referring to the idea of returns. Mm -hmm. So eBay... Um, recommends over and over again that you offer free returns. And this is not practical for Canadian sellers because every time we get a return, it has to come across the border. Um, and the whole yeah. process costs quite a bit more and takes quite a bit longer. Um, so we don't offer free returns. And that's one place where we might be at a slight disadvantage compared to some American sellers. But mm. again, focusing on things that I can control. Um, putting together a great listing involves a, an excellent title with good search engine optimization, excellent keywords that are going to be uh, that the buyers are most likely to use when they're searching for our items. Um, desc- describing items like there are no pictures and taking pictures like there is no description. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, nice. so uh, getting up to those twelve maximum photos every time and making those as clear as we can, and then repeating everything in the description, even if it was quite obvious in the pictures. Um, we, in my listing template that I have my um, my helpers use, I write write it like a human. So just write a paragraph about the item as if you were just explaining it to somebody verbally. You know, buyers want to connect with other humans. You know, we're not robots here selling on eBay. So Mm -hmm. that helps um, the buyer make a little bit better connection with the seller, I think, from the start. So do you Um, do sort of a slightly sort of puffy piece and and try and promote the item in the text or you just describe it and let the buyer figure out whether or not they like it? Yeah, I don't like being too subjective because that can sometimes lead to confusion around what the item actually is and what I'm representing. Um, So we try to be as objective as possible, but as descriptive as possible. From time to time, I might put in a thing like, oh, you know, 
I displayed this on my fireplace mantle and it looked beautiful there. But like, I usually not. We're trying to just say like, here's the item, here's what it is, here's everything I can say about it. If there's a story behind it that I know or I know what it was used for, I'll say that. But quite often we don't because we're just buying things from estates and stuff and we're not able to ask the people anything about it. But, you know, just as descriptive as we can be. I love what you say, photograph it like there's no description and describe it like there's no photos. And I think that's as, a Brian Burke uh, copyrighted feature. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I I'm going to. Yeah, I don't think that, that came I from Jessica, me. I'm not, I think Jessica owes him a, <laughs> owes him a drink. I'm not, okay. I'm not taking credit for that one, um, but it is, it's definitely a policy everybody should be following. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. It's well, strong. I'm going to use that with my helpers. And another good thing uh, that I do to them is have them answer questions a lot of times because the questions are many times what's missing from the description. So what are the hip measurements? Mm -hmm. That's one I gave to Zach the last few days uh, with a couple of listings. Um, anyway, there's nothing like answering questions to program your mind on what to put in the description. It's really hard when you're learning a new category of selling. Um, to figure out what kinds of things buyers need to know. Yeah. Um, I find that really interesting. So recently we we bought this huge collection of model kits, you know, like the 124th scale, they build the kit, they paint it and whatever. And um, there were just certain things that the buyers wanted to know about, um, you know, the, you know, how complete the item was or whether it was partially built or like certain little things. I'm like, I never would have thought that they would have cared about that. And it was the same yeah. thing with comic books when we started selling comic books, you know, understanding like, what is a spine tick? Like, what do, what are these, how do you describe the flaws? What is the vocabulary that people use when they're collecting comic books so that you mm -hmm. can make sure that your description says everything that they need to know? That kind of stuff takes a while to learn. And um, I've just learned that mostly from like looking at other sellers and saying, what are the kinds of things that they're describing here that I might need to do as well in my listings? Yes. And I can I backtrack and ask you a question about um, the fact that you're in Canada and it sounds like uh, most of your buyers are in the United States or? Yeah, about 75%. Okay. And are you listing directly on eBay.com or eBay Canada? We list almost exclusively on eBay.com. The only time we use eBay.ca is for things that we think are going to be really specific to Canadians and will most likely be bought by a Canadian. You know, so like memorabilia from like Canadian bands and stuff like that. Most Americans are not going to know who those bands are, so we might put those on eBay.ca. But yeah. Okay, well, that's really interesting. And I do ship uh, quite a bit to Canada, but you're a great example of... The fact that you are at that disadvantage as far as shipping, but just you control the things that you can and mm -hmm. you're successful. So, I mean, while we're sort of talking about pricing, do you have a formula that says, okay, after a certain number of days, I reduce the price or do you up the promotion instead? I mean, what's your sort of system for managing the longer tail inventory items in terms of price? I wish so much that eBay had features where you could automatically add best offer or automatically discount items after they've been sitting for a certain amount of days. I want this uh -huh. so much. Um, having to do it manually like is, is difficult because we have about 6,200 listings and <laughs> going and reducing the price on each one of those is super time consuming. But what I try to do is after two to three weeks, I will do offers to watchers. 
Mm-hmm. And I usually make that a pretty small discount, maybe 10%. Um, and so I try to capture the people that are already looking and already interested in the item first um, and see what that does. And then it's after 30 days. I really use the offers to watchers feature a lot. It's like my probably the number one promotional tool that I use on eBay. So mm-hmm. after about 30 days, I might go 15 percent and after 60 days, 20. And I will continue to rotate that as new items come up that I can send offers on. Um, so I do that. And then after... 30 to 60 days, I will bulk edit listings that haven't sold and I'll allow best offers on those. And I always set the auto decline at about 60% because I don't even want to talk to low ballers. I don't, we just don't need to talk. And so um, that, that eliminates that kind of <laughs> group of buyers for the most part. And, um, and then I, yeah, then I work with people, um, you know, listing by listing until, until we sell and talking of being selective about people, are you a prolific user of the the block bidder system, or no. do you have a very uh, you have a filter that says, okay, that's a red flag, I'm not dealing with this person? No, not really. Honestly, I mean, in all the eBay selling that we've done, I think my block bidder list has like maybe like seventy five people on it. Like I just. You know, for the most part, a lot of the issues we have with buyers come from miscommunication. And even when mm-hmm. the buyer, when we're sure that the buyer is in the wrong, there's always something we can learn as business owners that can maybe prevent a similar issue from happening in the future. I don't see the need to punish anybody for that. Also, if a buyer is that mad at me, the chances that they're going to come around and like buy from me just to spite me is so small. I mean, I just... No, I don't even have time to go find my block better list and add their name. I could probably list three items in that amount of time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think it's interesting that you said, but correct me if I'm wrong, after 30 to 60 days, you're adding best offer as opposed to marking them down using Markdown Manager. I like running sales and I do run sales um, on categories of items. I tend to run those at certain times of year. So obviously Q4 is a great time to be running markdown sales right around Black Friday. And as we lead up to Christmas time, as long as you can get your sales in by that shipping deadline, you know, I really encourage buyers to purchase um, to and by offering them a discount and also making sure that it will get to them by Christmas. Um, so I like to, to run those sales based on time of year. I also run markdown sales when um, we have a large amount of items left in a certain category where we've already made like all our money from that and we just want to sort of move that inventory out then i will run a markdown sale to try and um, flush it out of our boxes so that we can fill the boxes with more stuff do you use the custom label field to tell yourself what your margin is or how much you can lower something or do you just recognize it um, no, I only use the custom label field to tell us where the heck in our warehouse we're going to find that thing. You've got 6,000 <laughs> plus items. How often do you find yourself unable to locate the item? That must be happening every day with 6,000 no. items. Oh, no, almost never. It's, it's wow. you know, it's like once once every couple of months maybe that we can't find something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's You know, good. when I can't find something, it strangely lately has been that it somehow was duplicated. I feel like it might have been a glitch Mm -hmm. um, because I'll find it on the sold sheet after looking through many bins. So just just to pick up on Sherry's uh, point, sorry, stepping on you there, but uh, we were talking about the custom, not using the custom message field as a way of tracking your cost of goods. How do you keep track of cost of goods then if it's not embedded in, in the listing? Do you have a separate database for that? 
We lump everything together. So just for bookkeeping and accounting pur- purposes, we our cost of goods is simply the sum of any purchases that we've made. Um, okay. And we just do it like that. We can't, with all of the items that we get, we can't individually track every single item that we buy and what our margin is on it. So we kind of, we're a little bit, um, I don't want to use the word haphazard, but relaxed, I guess, in our approach mm-hmm. to this because we know, we know when we make a purchase that if we were to average out the amount of money we spend on each item, it's usually less than a dollar. So it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really matter if I track exactly wh- what my margin was on that specific item. I'm looking at overall, if I bought this collection for $5,000, did I sell it for at least $25,000? Then I'm happy and we're done. And I can just blow out the remaining inventory because I'm already in the profit. Do you think that with 6,000 items, is there a sweet spot in terms of how many items you can carry? Is that sort of the cost of variety there becoming quite significant? Is there like a a smaller, much more profitable business hidden away somewhere in there that maybe with focus you could could make more money? I, um, when I used to do business consulting, we would talk all the time about finding your ideal customers. So like, who are the buyers that you most want to buy from you? What do they purchase? How do they make buying decisions? And really focus in on figuring out who those people are and what they want. And if you want apply that to an eBay business, it can mean niching down into certain categories mm-hmm. where you really understand the buyer's needs and you're offering them things that they will consistently want over and over again. So even though we sell a huge variety of items, we do make a lot of our sales in three or four categories. That's comic books, vinyl records, um, die-cast cars, and well, lately it's been model kits because we had so many of them. Um, so we'll sometimes grow like an arm of our business because we happen to purchase a huge collection of something. Um, and then all of a sudden we're the de facto Canadian sellers for that thing, you know, for like mm-hmm. six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think you're right. I think there is there's definitely advantage in really understanding a few categories and trying to focus your sourcing there. It makes your business more efficient. You know what to look for when you're buying. You know how to describe the listing, uh, the items more easily. Um, You know how to anticipate the questions that buyers want and you know how to package that thing so it doesn't break. Um, So I think there is huge advantages in becoming category experts in just a few places. Um, Mm -hmm. And you you will find a majority of your sales come from those areas. And you mentioned sourcing there. Is that an area where sellers typically get hung up or make mistakes? Yeah, so that was the third thing. So we were talking about the three strategic mistakes, and we already Mm -hmm. talked about profit margin. We talked about pricing a little bit, although I think it would be cool to loop back to that uh, maybe. And talking about sourcing. And I'm getting actually a lot of questions as the podcast listenership grows about sourcing. Um, Did you know it's uh, National Thrift Store Day, by the way? No, (laughs) I don't thrift, but (laughs) I don't thrift either. But I just thought it was funny that happens because I tend to tell people don't thrift. It's a waste of your time. Um, (laughs) Thrifters Um, tend to love thrifting. And for me, it's kind of like that. That's my version of hell. Well, I think those are the people that have time on their hands and just want to get out the house. And it's a different segment to compete in, perhaps, than people that are seriously trying to make a make a, a decent living. There is nothing wrong with going thrifting if you enjoy it. You just have to understand that this is time that's not likely to be valuable in your business. Mm -hmm. So if you like to do it, do it. I mean, heck, 
why not? But um, it's not a good uh, it's not a good place to rely on for sourcing consistently. So to sort of answer your question, I think um, sourcing is a place where a lot of uh, sellers do get hung up. Where should I go? What should I buy? I don't really understand all the categories of collectibles that I could sell. Um, you know how and how do I get past all of that? And there's no real good answer to that other than that it takes a lot of time. <laughs> but if you have an opportunity to purchase a lot of a similar item, I think that's a really good place to start to understand sourcing. Like, oh, I can buy, you know, like we did in March, we can buy 500 model kits. We'd never really sold model kits before, but we were like, well, we mm -hmm. that, sell die cast cars. I think we can figure out our way around this. We paid maybe three or $4 per item. And we just learned everything that we could about that category. So now, going forward, if that happens to come up again, where somebody is liquidating a whole bunch of model kits, we will know exactly what to do. And you do make mistakes in sourcing. Sometimes you buy stuff that you're pretty sure is going to work out for you, but then it doesn't. I remember a couple of years ago, we had a funny one. We bought these vintage manuals for, um, you know, like caterpillar bulldozers and, and tractors mm -hmm, and stuff, mm -hmm. like repair manuals. We looked at the ratios of available to sold on eBay and they were pretty good. And it, it was a really cheap purchase. So we were like, let's buy these. <laughs> I think we sell like that was like at least two years ago. I think we maybe sell like one every couple of weeks and we still have this whole shelf full of them <laughs> oh and like even <laughs> marking them down doesn't doesn't do anything because it's just like it's such a specific thing you know there aren't that many buyers out there for that specific um tractor <laughs> we're just like why oh, do that's we do great that? but i mean whatever it's like it you know that's 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 what it is i won't buy those particular types of manuals ever again that's okay <laughs> so do you think that people kind of get into a groove when it comes to sourcing they just go to the same places over and over and perhaps there could be other options they should be considering yeah and i think people are also afraid to take risks i think one of the appeals of thrifts and garage sales is that the things are relatively cheap so you can go and source a bunch of things for a dollar or two and mm -hmm. even if you don't make any money on them it's okay because it was only a dollar or two um, I think I think sellers who really want to scale up need to understand that they need to take bigger financial risks when it comes to sourcing. Spend more than fifty dollars. Spend five hundred. Can you spend five thousand? Can you spend twenty five thousand <laughs> if it's the right thing? Um, and being mm -hmm. able to get yourself there to that comfort level where you can put down four figures or five figures on a collection um, and then work that into your business like that's that's how you're going to grow. But yeah, I, I do think that people do get caught up in just sort of going to those same places over and over again and wondering why. It's like, I keep trying, to, I keep hoping this problem will go away and it just doesn't. So if, if I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, okay, yes, yeah, I kind of do the same old thing over and over in terms of sourcing. Where might I go to get some ideas for other places that I should be looking at? It's really going to be region specific. And I think it depends a lot on whether sellers are living in rural or urban areas. Um, it depends on what kinds of industries happen in the region where you live in terms of what types of items you, you would be able to source. Um, and it's it's definitely not something that I would say we've mastered uh, after all these years even. We're still, especially during the pandemic, really struggled to source um, good inventory because people don't want us in their homes. Um, but one of the things we do that works fairly well is we just advertise like we use Craigslist or like local classifieds or and mm. we use Facebook ads and we just put it out there and we say this is what we're buying 
So again, and, this is uh, part of the specialization thread you were talking about earlier, is it? That we're looking for this, this, and this, rather than yeah. any estate sale. It's beginning to really try to sort of concentrate on a few categories. Yeah, we definitely do a little bit of both, and we do get better results from the very specific ads. Um, but mm -hmm. we're always looking for big estates because there's always just such cool things. It's like kind of where our passion lies, and just finding like these really awesome antique things that are unique and one of a kind. So we do advertise to clear clear out estates, um, but we do yeah we want to get into these specific categories and buy these specific things. So we use targeted Facebook ads to find those people who are getting rid of their comic collections or their diecast collections, and see if we can make deals with them. That's I see so lots of uh, YouTubers with sort of headlines saying the thrifting bubble has burst and stuff. Do you think that's true? <laughs> I wouldn't know because I didn't never went there in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> I like what you're doing. I had someone tell me before to put in an ad, you know, a posting on Craigslist as an item for sale and say we buy at the time it was laptops that I was, I had a nice techie guy that was uh, restoring them. Um, but so put it like you're selling something as far as how you create it, the listing on Craigslist and then say, we buy such and such laptops. And I did get a response from that. Is that how you put it on Craigslist as something for sale or do you put it in a different area? Um, we just use the wanted category. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now you said you wanted to go back and talk a bit more about pricing. Can we can we do that? Yeah. I mean, do you have any sort of quick rules of thumb in terms of how someone should go about setting a, a price of something on eBay? Well, I think it, if you you know if you spend five dollars on an item and you want to make sure that you make fifty, that's one way to go about it. It's just that sort mm -hmm. of cost plus pricing strategy. That's how they would say it in business school, it's cost plus. So you look at what you spent on the item, you add a margin that you're comfortable with, you incorporate your cost of overhead into that, and then you price accordingly, or you can price a little bit higher to allow yourself room for discounts in the future. So there's that that pricing strategy that um, works pretty well. Um, <clears throat> but just, I think the main thing when it comes to pricing is just understanding that price isn't the only factor in a buyer's decision-making, that they're looking also at the things that we already talked about, strong descriptions, strong pictures, a seller that has fair policies, sellers that are confident and have a lot of feedback and have been around for a long time and are trustworthy. And sometimes they're going to purchase from you even if your price is higher than the competition um, because they trust you on all of those different levels. And so it's like, it's one thing to come up with a pricing strategy, but I think just sellers need to understand that going low is not always going to be the winning strategy. Do yeah. you um, worry about feedback? No, I, w I think eBay should get rid of it. Why? Oh, wow. I, it's not, think, if you think about the way that the feedback system works on eBay, mm. for one, it's not reciprocal. We can't leave negative feedback for buyers. I'm not suggesting that we should be able to, but we can't. And so mm. on that level, it's not fair. It doesn't go in both directions. I think that's a huge problem with it. Um, I don't think social proof is re is relevant for eBay selling in particular. I think we can do away with it because for that reason. And then also, uh, it's also not 
too challenging to get a negative feedback removed if you want to. And there's mm -hmm. lots of sellers out there who are not great sellers, but they figured out the, <laughs> the game they need to play with the eBay reps to get negative feedback removed. So their feedback is inflated and it looks better than it is. So I just think there's too many problems with the feedback system. I don't think eBay can fix them. And so I think they should just get rid of it. Okay. Wow. That's crazy talk. Is it? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It's you're a strong gonna, opinion. I, I yeah, you're going to flip two or three the years ago, I thought they were hinting there was going to be a whole revamp of DSRs and, and feedback, but I haven't. That's, they've been very quiet and I haven't heard anything since. So I don't know whether there's someone in a conference room somewhere in San Jose who's coming up with the new system or they just think it's not worth spending the money on changing it. The way, the way it works now is good enough as far as they're concerned. Well, Mine I mean, ask 100%. 100%. Oh, yeah, sorry. ours is ninety nine point six or something like mine that. Mine is I now. I looked at it the by accident yesterday, and it's ninety nine point eight. And I'm like, what happened? <laughs> Do I have time to deal with this? No, you don't, and don't bother. It. it <laughs> Thank you. I have very strong okay. opinions about this. While I do, I'm glad. I, if, I think if you ask a hundred buyers, do they read through a seller's feedback? I think most of them are going to say they look at the total number and stop there. Mm -hmm. If you got two feedback as a seller, that's more of a problem. If you've got 6,000, 9,000, even 500 feedback, they're like, oh yeah, this person's done this before, good enough. I think we have about seven negatives on our account in the past 12 months. I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't care. <laughs> that's awesome, I love it. If See, they're lose, really bad, I, I get sleep, them removed. I would lose sleep for the entire 12 months it was up there, so I'm, Oh, but why, my... you can't please everybody. There's always gonna be somebody <laughs> who's just like, oh, I hated this experience. You put one extra piece of cardboard in my box and I didn't like that, like too much tape. Like, I mean, whatever. Mm -hmm. Now you said you're on a path here to try and- <laughs> That's great. So $1 million, that's Canadian dollars revenue. Is that your mission in life now? It's 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 up there. Um, I think in today's economic situation, mm -hmm. it's going to be challenging. Is that just you, or would you be hiring people to get there? I'm just out of interest in how how you're going to get how you're going to make that happen. Yeah, you I have think a team, right? We have a small team. I think it should be probably a little bit bigger. Um, right now, we're kind of doing like the the teenage student route that, that you are, Sherry, and uh -huh. we have a couple of people who work for us remotely, so they create um, listings for the more standard categories of items that we sell, like comics and diecast. So we've managed to streamline that. I think that um, we have had full-time help in the past and for various reasons it hasn't worked out. So I think we're kind of talking about when we wanna go back to hiring a full-time local, um, but we don't think we're quite ready yet. But I think mm -hmm. it, you, do need, you do need a team to get yourself to seven figures. It's just with the two of us and the help that we have, it's won't, it won't be enough. The other thing that an employee does for you, or at least somebody who's around all the time, is it gets you working more, which is kind of nice. Absolutely. Right? You know, when you're I, like, oh, you need work time, for that person. <laughs> well, I, I, when I, this summer I had a full crew and I had five working at a time and I am bound and determined that they will all be very productive. So <laughs> I've got to be right there. Um, but it, it works really well and it's a fun environment. See, I was thinking it would be nice because you could take time off and go and sit on the beach, but it sounds oh, like no. the opposite is true. You've got to sit there and crack the whip. Yeah, I don't want anyone, I, I don't want that many people working with me not here, making mm -hmm. sure we're uh, very profitable. Then you're starting to talk about, well, how does my team work and what is my company culture like? And these are... These are really, you know, that's a totally different space to start getting into as you're scaling up. It's like, 
yeah, you, you do want stuff so that you can take time off. I mean, that's part of it, right? Like people joke about how eBay sellers work seven days a week, you know, 17 hours a day. They got their chichings going off in the middle of the night while they're sleeping and stuff like that. And that's really not like sustainable as a way to live. You, you do need to be able to take a break. And if you're doing eBay as a full-time business, it needs to be treated like a job to a certain extent. Yes. So you have to be able to take your vacations. You have to be able to break or you're going to burn yourself out. And the team can help support you with that. But you also have to reciprocate, right? So how, how what does my team need from me? How can I be fair to them? Give them the, re- the rest and the breaks that they need and deserve as well. Yes, I, I do give them breaks. And, <laughs> That's um, good. <laughs> yes. And we're, we're having fun down there. We really are. Mm-hmm. When I say down there, it is a basement. And um, I keep it cold because I run hot, but you know, that way, keep everyone cool so they can keep working. Keep um, moving. <laughs> we like to, I like to get them DoorDash for different occasions, you know, like get some lunch in here. And uh, one of them put on his review that his favorite thing about the job was the bubblies. So I got to keep the, the carbonated water going. So, Jessica, if people want to find out more about you and the advice that you have to offer, you've got, first of all, a a podcast, right? Do you want to tell us a bit about that, where you can find that? Yes, I'm having so much fun with the podcast. It's called The Business of Reselling. Um, Right now, if you go to businessofreselling.com, it will just link you to um, where you can download the podcast on any of the podcast players that you might use so you'll mm-hmm. be able to find it easily and yeah the podcast is sort of it's a little bit about our journey to scaling up bigger and sort of going from that half million to million dollar level but the advice um, and the things that I'm trying to share are aimed at helping listeners do the same thing whether they're making ten thousand dollars and they want 50 they want 50 they have 50 and they want 250 you know whatever it is if you're an experienced seller who's interested in scaling up and growing your business into something sustainable that supports your lifestyle and makes you a full-time income that's really the type of listener that i'm talking to with the types of type of advice that i'm giving very good now we can also i think um hear you speak at the reseller remix is that right I'm pretty excited about this. So yeah, the Mm -hmm. Boss Reseller Remix happening in Las Vegas in October. I'll be one of the speakers there and I'm actually talking about a lot of similar topics to what we discussed today. Are you able to tell us what your talk is about or is that super, super secret? (laughs) It's not a secret, it's just not quite developed. So I think we just have some some ideas roughly outlined and I'll put it together as I always do three days before the conference and it'll be fantastic. (laughs) That's great. Excellent. Okay, well, we look forward to um, seeing you do that. There's also, uh, I remember you did the uh, seller presentation at eBay Open last year, so there's a a YouTube video somewhere of you doing that one, right? Uh, Yeah, I believe that is still posted online if anybody wants to listen to it, and if anyone wants to just learn about our business directly, storagewarrior.ca is our business website. Okay, excellent. I thought it was interesting because a lot of what you were talking about, I think, was really hinting towards the benefits of specializing a bit, and that's kind of one of the things I try and pontificate about from time to time because I think that's the clue to making decent margin. So anyway, that was good stuff. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Oh, it was Thank really you, fun. Jessica. It was great having you here. Very appreciative. And that's Thanks the uh, the uh, Selling on eBay radio show for this time. Philip Jackson saying thank you very much. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening. 